can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We will be looking at verses 15 through 35 this morning. Matthew 24, 15 through 35. That's on page 1538 of your pew Bibles. And this section continues on with Jesus' Olivet Discourse and his answer to the disciples' question concerning the destruction of the temple. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, There he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thus ends our reading of God's salvific word. May all who hear it understand the sign that has been given to them. It was the year 167 B.C. and Mattathias Maccabee was hiding out in the wilderness with his fellow Jews. He was planning his next raid upon the evil regime that was oppressing his people. You see, just months prior, Jerusalem had been besieged by the Seleucid king Antiochus IV. This wicked ruler had surrounded the city. He had laid siege upon it. it. And he did not make his initial invasion until the Sabbath day. And the reason he had done this is because he knew 
that he would face the least resistance from those Jews who were truly orthodox, from those who would refuse to fight on the Sabbath. By the time he was finished, roughly 40,000 of the Jewish people had been slaughtered. And roughly an equal amount had been captured and sold into slavery. After his victory, Antiochus then desecrated the temple of the Lord by erecting an idol to Zeus upon the altar of burnt offering. And it was upon that altar that he, he, he then sacrificed a pig along with other unclean animals, adding insult to injury. He then outlawed the Jewish faith. To worship Yahweh was now illegal and punishable by death. Parents could no longer circumcise their children, nor could they give them Hebrew names. The only form of worship that was permissible was to bend the knee to, to the Greek gods. You see, Antiochus was determined to Hellenize Jerusalem, to, to make it Greek. And he would use the edge of the sword as his motivator. For every Jew who desired to be faithful to their God, these were dark days. Days of great distress. Days of desolation. And yet, there was a remnant that had escaped to the mountains. And they were led by Mattathias Maccabee. And though it would take roughly three and a half years for this Maccabean revolt to ultimately prove successful, they did gain victory. For God was not finished with his people. He would restore them to the land once again in order that they might worship him. You see, he was preparing them for something greater. Fast forward 200 years and, and we find Jesus sitting upon the Mount of Olives giving words of warning to his disciples. It is in this Olivet Discourse, this prophetic sermon, that, that, that we see that Jerusalem would be in danger once again. Only this time it would be a divine judgment upon a wicked generation. We, we have now reached this portion of Matthew's gospel that is, is very, very difficult for us to understand. A passage that can be daunting to most Christians. For in this discourse, Jesus uses an apocalyptic language that we are not used to. He speaks in hyperbole. He uses symbolism. He quotes Old Testament passages that we are not familiar with. And the challenge for us is to decipher and to interpret. We must step out of our 21st century American context and, and enter in to the mindset of a first century Jew. And this is particularly true for our passage for today. If you recall, Jesus, as he was departing Jerusalem, he had given this prophecy that that the temple would be destroyed, that not one stone would be left upon another. And, and shortly after, when they were upon the Mount of Olives, it was his disciples who came to, them, came to him and asked him two important questions. When would this happen? 
And what would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they wanted to know the date that the temple would be destroyed. And they wanted to know the sign that they should be looking for, telling them that the end was near. And as Jesus responded to these men, he began by answering their last question first. What would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he did so by warning them of the type of men that they needed to be in these upcoming days. This is what we talked about last week. First, they would need to be discerning. For there would be many false prophets and false messiahs who would try to fool them. They would point to the troubles of this world, claiming that those would be the signs of God and of the end of the age. Things such as earthquakes and famines and wars. Jesus' disciples were not to follow these men or to believe the lies that they spewed. Thus, they would need discernment. But they would need courage as well, as troubling times did await them. They were not to give in to fear. They were not to be led by the emotional whims of those around them. Rather, they were to keep a cool head and continue to follow the teachings of their master. And then the third thing that Jesus told them that they needed to be were were to be men of conviction. For persecution was coming. Jesus said that they would be hated by the world because of their loyalty to him. That they would suffer and perhaps even die for their faith, and yet they must stand firm. And finally, Jesus left them with a promise as well. An assurance that their gospel witness would go out into all the world before the end of the age. Before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But none of these things were to be interpreted as a sign of Jesus' coming. Yes, they must take place, but there would be one sign that would be significant. One sign that they needed to watch out for. And we see that sign in, in, in the very first verse that we read in our passage for today. Look at verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. As Americans, there are certain things in our history that for us is just common knowledge. And yet for the rest of the world is gibberish. For example, if I say one is by land and two if by sea, Ring a bell? Yeah? Paul Revere, the Revolutionary War. Suppose I said that to a Kenyan. Would they have any clue what I'm talking about? Probably not. If I say Gettysburg, what do you think of? Civil War, President Lincoln, the end of slavery. If I say Gettysburg to a Syrian, they're just going to be in the dark. If I say MLK, what do we think of? Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Movement, the the march upon Washington, D.C. But if I say MLK to a Korean, 
they're going to be wondering what those three letters stand for. You see, there are certain key phrases that we can use as Americans that, that, that bring up a wealth of history and knowledge. Well, the same was true for first century Jews. And there were certain phrases that when spoken would have caused a similar reaction. And this is what we see Jesus doing when he mentioned this abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. This was a reference that any, any first century Jew would have easily understood because it was so fresh in their memories, in their recent history. It was like one if by land and two if by sea. And it is why I began my sermon with the tale of Mattathias Maccabee and, and Antiochus IV. For, for that is the event that Jesus was speaking of. Four times in the book of Daniel, we, we read about the, the, the prophet. He, he d describes this abomination that causes desolation. The, the first reference is in Daniel 8, verse 13. The second in Daniel 9, verse 27. The third one, Daniel 11, verse 31. And finally in Daniel 12, verse 11. But it is in chapter 11 where we receive the greatest details concerning this event. Look at, look at Daniel 11, starting in verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships from the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return to show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress, and he will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Here we see a description of Antiochus IV trying to invade Egypt only to fail in his attempt. And in his frustration, he then returned to Jerusalem where he vented his anger upon God's people. A people who had refused to Hellenize, refused to become Greek. So he went to war against them. He laid siege upon their city. He slaughtered thousands and sent thousand more into slavery. He then desecrated their temple and cut off all sacrifices to Yahweh for roughly three and a half years. This, this was the sign that Jesus was referring to. Just as Antiochus had laid siege to Jerusalem roughly 200 years prior, this same event the same thing was going to happen again. Armies would approach the city, and that would be the sign that the end was about to happen. In the Gospel of Luke, we receive confirmation that this is what Jesus meant. Because Luke was writing to a more Gentile audience, 
an audience who would not have understood the reference that Jesus was referring to, Luke spells this out clearly for us. Look at Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And so the sign that they were to look for was a military siege upon Jerusalem. This is what would be their signal. It is what would tell them that the temple was about to be thrown down. That the old covenant would finally be put to rest. But Jesus did not just leave them with a sign to look for. But he also gave them instruction as well. Look back again at Matthew 24, this time at verses 16 through 22. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This devastation that the Romans would bring was not just upon Jerusalem, but throughout all of Judea. It was in 66 AD that General Vespasian began his slow march towards the holy city with over 60,000 troops. And on that march, he began attacking each and every one of these smaller villages that were scattered throughout the land. Now, of course, there were Jews who, who tried to defend their homes, giving battle and resisting. But Vespasian was too powerful. He had 60,000 troops. And the efforts of those men led to the deaths of thousands more. Of course, there were many of the Jews who did not fight back. Rather, they fled to Jerusalem, thinking that they would find safety behind the walls of that great city. And for a time, that they, they felt that security. For this slow march of Vespasian was so meticulous that it took him over a year before he had reached the outer walls. It wasn't until 68 AD that he had the city surrounded. But the siege was brutal, lasting until 70 AD. There were food shortages. There was disease. And in desperation, different Jewish factions, they, they turned upon one another, causing even more harm. By the time it was all said and done, over a million Jews had died either by the sword or by pestilence or by famine. The city flowed with blood as the Romans finally broke through the walls. And then they tore the whole thing to the ground. And yet, the Christians understood what was happening before it took place. Why did they understand? Because Jesus had warned them. 
They did not fight. They did not take refuge behind Jerusalem's walls. Instead, they did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They fled to the mountains, to a place called Pella. Listen to the words of ancient historian Eusebius. But the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approve men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. You see, because of Jesus, his followers were able to escape this coming judgment. He had provided for them a window where they could be saved. What did he say to them? Flee to the mountains. If you're in the field and you see the armies coming, don't go back to get your cloak. Rather, run. If you are upon your rooftop and you see the glint of shining armor off in the distance, don't go down your stairs to gather all your belongings. Rather, jump from roof to roof so that you might escape. For this will be a time of suffering like none other, a distress that is unequaled. Don't try to fight. Don't try to stand your ground. Don't seek shelter in Jerusalem. Rather, flee to the mountains. This sign that Jesus gave to them, this abomination that causes desolation, that's what they looked for. And because of that, they found refuge in the mountains. They found safety in Pella. And then as if to stress the point that this abomination spoken of through the prophet Daniel was to be the one sign that they should be looking for, Jesus then repeated some of his earlier warnings concerning the deceptions of false messiahs and false prophets. Look at verses 23 through 30. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Once again, Jesus reminded these men that they were not to pay attention to the claims of these false prophets and false messiahs. 
They were not... They were not to give credence to any signs or wonders that they might perform. Jesus told them that there would be one sign and that it would be plain as day. That it would be obvious. Just as lightning can be seen from miles away, this march of Vespasian towards Jerusalem with his 60,000 soldiers, it was visible for all to see. And for the Christians, those who trusted in Jesus' words, they knew exactly what that march would mean. That the temple would finally be toppled. And that the end of the age and the coming of the Son of Man and judgment was at hand. Now the language that Jesus uses here is cataclysmic. I mean, think about the sun and the moon will be darkened. Stars falling from the sky, heavenly bodies shaking. These things are meant to evoke imagery of the Old Testament prophets. For example, look at Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 13. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty and the day of his burning anger. What is described here in the book of Isaiah is not the end of the world, though it sounds that way, but it is God's judgment upon one nation, the nation of Babylon. This hyperbolic language is meant to show the seriousness of God's holiness and his justice. Jesus is doing the same exact thing in the Olivet Discourse. This was God's judgment upon one nation. The fall of Jerusalem came as a result of the sin of the people. A people who had rejected their Messiah. A people who had cried out to Pilate, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. A people who had crucified their king. Yahweh would now bring about his righteous judgment upon this people. And it would be cataclysmic. And yet for God's chosen. For those who had embraced his son. For those who looked to the cross and received forgiveness. He would bring to them Refuge. Look at, look at our last verses. Look at verses 31 through 35. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, 
right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God would make sure that his children would not fall under his judgment. He would gather them from the four winds, from throughout the land of Judea, and he would bring them safely to Pella. He, he would place his mighty hand between them and his wrath. He would shield them from his vengeance. Dear friends, this is what God does for those he loves. And it is what he does for us as well. Their story is our story. For the events that took place in 70 AD paint for us a picture of every generation. God's judgment is still upon this earth. There are still those who reject his son. And they will face the wrath of God, if not in this life, then in the next. And yet, there are also God's elect, his chosen people, his church, those who have embraced his son as both Lord and Messiah. To them, God provides refuge. You see, you too have a sign. You have been given a sign to look to. And that sign is the cross of Christ. For it is at the cross that, that you see the judgment of God. For the wages of sin is death. But it is also at the cross that you can find refuge. For it is there that you see Jesus Christ, the God-man. The one who took upon your sin as he bled and died for you. He paid the penalty that you deserve. And in return, he offers to you his forgiveness. He is the shelter from the storm that is God's fury. Dear friends, the cross of Christ is the one and only sign that you should look to. Just as the abomination that causes desolation was a sign seen by the whole world, so now the cross can be seen by all people and all lands. God has made it plain. He has made it obvious. He is calling all men to flee from the wrath that is to come. And where are they to flee? They are to flee to Jesus. For it is only in him that they can find refuge. Turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Look to the sign of the cross and flee to the mountain that is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as a as a broken people, a people deserving of the, the same destruction that fell upon Jerusalem all those years ago. And yet in your mercy, you have given to us refuge. 
And we find that refuge in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to sanctify us until that last day when Christ will one day bodily return, bringing about your last judgment. And we pray that on that day, we will cling to Jesus and to no one else. For he truly is our one refuge. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.